few years ago, Americans were asked what phrases they liked to hear the most. Now, you probably won't be surprised to hear that the number one phrase that Americans like to hear, number one phrase is, I love you, right? In fact, why don't you look to somebody next to you and say, Johnny, you have nobody sitting next to you. I just realized that, right? You got Barry. Look to somebody next to you and say, I love you. Or if you remember a few years ago during the Super Bowl, there was a commercial where one man looked at another and said, I love you, man. However you want to share your affection, that's good. Go ahead. I love you. The second phrase that Americans enjoyed hearing was, I forgive you. Now, I don't know if any of you need to look to the person next to you or not and say, I forgive you, but... If you need to, you might want to go ahead and take this opportunity. Now, the third phrase might surprise you. The third phrase that Americans said they most enjoyed hearing was supper time. (laughs) Yeah, really. I love you, I forgive you, and come and get it. That's the way we Americans look at things. Yeah, I read that this week, and I thought... I mean, it took my mind to a, to a section of scripture that we don't often go to. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And it's a story about an obscure character who was pulled from obscurity by the king of Israel, King David. And he did so because he had made a promise to his best friend, Jonathan, years before. And he had promised that when he became king that he would do well by Jonathan's family, that he would honor Jonathan's family. You see, during this time in history, when one ruling family would replace another, it was often the policy that the new ruling family would kill off all the heirs of the previous ruling family. That way no one would ever lay claim to the throne. It was Game of Thrones before there was Game of Thrones. And David one day remembers the promise that he made to Jonathan. And he asked if there were any of the descendants of Jonathan still living that he might show kindness to. And and he received word that there was a son of Jonathan that was named Mephibosheth who lived in an area called Lodabar. And that he was crippled. The backstory is that when Jonathan and his father, King Saul, were killed in battle, servants of the family began to flee, again, fearing what might take place as the, the new ruling family would take over. And at five years old, Mephibosheth was picked up by one of the servants of Saul's family and as they were hurriedly rushing to try to flee whatever impending doom they thought might come there was an accident and the accident left Mephibosheth crippled in both legs and so now he was living in a place whose name meant desolation appropriate living not in his own home but in 
the house of someone else who had shown him kindness. He was far away from the king, far away from the kingdom, far away from any type of royalty, hoping that no one would find him. But word came to David that there was someone who was still living from Jonathan's family. And David says, I want to show him kindness. Please bring him to me. And so all the king's horses and all the king's men, they ride out to Lodabar. And they go and they take Mephibosheth and they, they put him in the carriage of the king and they bring him before David. Mephibosheth, fearing for his life, falls before the king declares himself to be the servant of the one whom he is bowing before. And David does something that's incredible. David tells Mephibosheth that the property that had belonged to his family was going to be restored to him, that he was going to have others who would, who would help him take care of that property, individuals who would also help to care for him, and that he wasn't going to have to worry about anything from that day forward. And the coup de grace, the cherry on top of the ice cream, David said, and from this day forward, you will eat at the table of the king. In fact, when you read through that story in 2 Samuel chapter 9, you will see that David on four different occasions is quoted as saying, you're going to be eating at my table. And so I want you to picture just a moment the most beautiful phrase Mephibosheth could hear. Supper time. And all the children of David would come together. All the descendants of the king would gather around the table of the king. And there in the midst of them all will be one who was crippled. One who thought he did not have an inheritance. One who thought that his life was to be lived out in desolation. And there with all the other children of the king he would sit and the tablecloth of grace would cover his feet. I love you. I forgive you. It's supper time. Isn't that what takes place each and every time we come together each Sunday? Where we're reminded of the love that God has, reminded that we too are heirs of royalty. We're reminded that we also have suffered a terrible fall, that we also have been crippled. And yet to be reminded that we have been forgiven and invited to sit at the banquet table of the king. To hear God say, I love you. I forgive you. It's supper time. We call it fancy word communion. But today, let's call it what it is. The time when the children of God hear the supper call of God. And join with sinners made saints.
and allow the tablecloth of grace to cover all of our sin. Father, it's supper time and you have called us together. And we have heard your invitation of grace. And so we have come to this place this morning to take bread, to share a cup, to be reminded of your love and your forgiveness. Thank you for allowing us to have a seat at the table. That no matter our color, no matter our language, no matter our history, no matter our future, no matter our net worth, no matter our education, we all are children of the King. And we all gather for supper. May the bread that we share together be a reminder of the love that you have for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Father, we thank you for your kindness in seeking us out that you might share your table. We look at the place in which we live And I guess we could call it Lodabar. For there are times that our lives are just lived in utter desolation. Sometimes it's because of decisions that we ourselves have made. Times when we have crossed lines that we said we would never cross. Times that, that we have run from responsibilities that we promised to uphold. Sometimes it's just been because of this world that we live in and it just seems as if it just seems as if Satan is truly running rampant and that things are just falling apart around us and that we are so out of control. We are no longer able to take care of ourselves. It seems we can't take care of our families. And yet this morning we heard your invitation of grace saying it's supper time. As we take this cup I pray that it will be a reminder to all of us of the forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ. And that we would be confident in the forgiveness that you have so lavished on us that we would be confident in the forgiveness from the things that have happened this last week, from the things that have been happening already this morning, that we'd be confident in the forgiveness as we go forward from this place, having assurance with our salvation. May we take this cup May we sit at this supper table and may we rejoice that you have found us, that you have called us, and that we are forgiven.
It's in the name of that grace, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Remain standing, please, as we read this scripture together. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us, nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. Thank you. You may be seated. So last week we began this series, Mindbender. And Sean is correct. I tried to bend your mind a little bit. I think we've got the picture again. For those of you who were not here, last week I made an audacious statement when I said that these tables everyone can see are the same. I mean, everybody knows that they are the same. The table on the left, the table on the right, those two tabletops are exactly the same. And last week, not only did we have this picture on the screen, it was also on the front of our glory, praise, and honor. I heard of, of one person who during the lesson began to, to tear out one of the tables to be able to place it on top of the other just to, just to check. Even though I, I showed a video last week with a guy that looked a lot like Steve Ramey, by the way. And I showed this video and, and he showed us how these tables were, were the same. And, and still some of you, some of you refuse to believe. And, and some of our shepherds, I gotta admit to you, you know, I, I threw Marco under the bus last week and said during staff meeting, Marco said, I've just got to see this for myself. We had some of our elders here who came and accused the preacher of Photoshop, of just making things up, of just trying to do some type of, of hocus pocus. And so I thought for all of you people who are elders and accountants, and her name Bob White, I wanted to have this picture up here again. And I wanted to make the claim one more time that these tabletops are, in fact, identical. Now, our, our mind does not see that. Our eyes do. Your eyes are able to see, actually, that these tabletops are the same. But once that image is relayed into your brain, that 2D image is turned into a 3D image. And, and your brain processes it like it thinks it should be seen in the real world. And... And even though you saw this last week, many of you, still when I put this picture up here today, you are, you're unaffected. You still cannot see how that these two are together. And I wanted to put it up and I wanted to, to start with this because I think it is such a, I think it's such a great example of what we are going through as we talk about the idea of grace. And for those of you who were not here last week, yes, you can if you need to. Um, you can Google Shepherd's Turning Table and you can work on that during the lesson. All right? I give you permission if you just want to prove it to yourself. But when you see grace, you automatically have certain thoughts and concepts that come to your mind. Certain things that you think and yet you know have to be true about the grace of God. Things that you say, I've heard this all my life. I, under, I understand grace. And yet, I am afraid that we have missed it. I'm afraid that we have truly missed out on the essence, 
that truly is the grace of God. Will we ever truly understand it? I don't know. I've heard countless lessons on grace. I've memorized all types of scriptures concerning grace. And it seems like every time that I study the subject again, there's something new that, that pops up. There's something, there's something new that comes to mind. But it's so important for us to return to this subject that we think we know and ask God to bend our mind one more time. Now, we are never going to truly appreciate grace. We're never going to appreciate grace and we're never going to appreciate the idea of supper time until we first appreciate the idea that we are loved and that, and that we are forgiven. You see, you can only appreciate grace to the extent that you can see your own sin. You understand that, right? That grace is only important to you, that grace is only meaningful to the extent that you see how desperately you are in need of that grace. And if you look at your life and say, you know what, I'm really, I'm really not that bad of a person. And we look at our life and say, you know, I don't think I'm really, I'm really in need of that kind of mercy. We never really appreciate the grace. But scripture is very clear on this subject. Paul would write to Christians living in Rome and he, he would tell them in no uncertain terms, everybody has sinned. Everyone has sinned. And everyone has fallen short of the glory, of the standard, of the expectation of God. It doesn't matter who you are. He spends the first two chapters of Romans looking at those who are of the Jewish faith and feel like they have security in their faith in Abraham and in following the law. He looks at those who had no law, those who did not even acknowledge God. He said, look, it doesn't matter if you come from a religious background. It doesn't matter if you come from a pagan background. It doesn't matter what continent you're on. It doesn't matter what your background is. Everybody has missed the mark of God's standard. He says that's the fact. That's the truth. Now let's be honest. We read this and, and we say, you know what? I might not be righteous but I'm not that bad, right? I might not be righteous, but I mean, I'm not that bad. And if that's something that already has gone through your mind, understand this, as long as you are not that bad, grace will never seem that good. I mean, why, why have grace if you don't need it? I mean, if you are so good and if, if you are able to, to live your life in a way where everybody says, you know what, oh, old Joe, man, old Joe, he's just a good old guy. You know, I mean, he pays his taxes and, man, he, he gives money to the, the local schools whenever they come by selling all their little coupon books. And every once in a while, I see him buying coffee for people out at, out at Hardee's. And he's just, man, he is always doing something here in the community. He's just a good old guy. 
Or, you know, that Kathy, I mean, she is always taking care of her neighbors. And I tell you, she is always running the school taxi and she will pick up anybody that needs a ride and she's carrying them to ball games and, and she's making runs to Target and, and she's getting uniforms and she's going back and forth doing all these things for all these families. You know, she's just a good old gal. And for so many of us, we have grown up in this culture that says, I'm not righteous, but I'm not bad. And because I'm a good old boy, and because I'm a good old girl, then everything's okay. Everything's okay. I mean, I've sinned, but I've not sinned, sinned. I mean, you know, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. I mean, you you do the little sins, but you don't do the big ones. You don't do the ones that end up on the front of the papers. You don't do the ones that cost you your job. You don't do the sins that cost you your family. You don't do the ones that, that make this big scene in the community. You just have the little sins. You just envy. And you're just greedy. And you're just selfish. And you just lust. And you just put your needs and wants above everything else. But you're not that bad. You're not that bad. You see, we, we keep this mindset because we like to compare ourselves. And so what we do, we, we sit at the table. We sit at the table and we look at the others who are sitting there with us. And we say, you know what? At least I'm not as bad as she is. At least I don't talk like him. At least I haven't done what they've done. And we begin to feel good about ourselves as we see the the missteps and the shortcomings of all those who are around us. And as long as I can find someone else that I am better than, then my conscience is clear. And yet scripture is even more clear. The people that sit at the table around you are not your standard. I cannot measure myself by my peers. I cannot measure myself by my co-workers. I cannot measure myself by others that I worship with, those that are in my small group. I cannot measure myself by the people that I work and see around me every day, those that are in the classroom with me, they're on the ball field. The only measurement that I have is God. And when I compare myself to that measurement, I fall so woefully short. For everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. You might not compare yourself to to others. Maybe you just start weighing the good and the bad. You just start kind of looking at your life and and you go ahead and and you kind of make a ledger and you just draw a line and, and on one side you put all the good things that you do and on the other side you put the bad. And you know what? Because you're a good guy and because you're a good gal, the ledger on that good side, there's just so many more things. And because there's so many more things, then, well, you're not that bad. Look at all of these things that are on the good side. Look at all the things that I have done. Surely, surely this, surely this means I don't need as much grace as someone else. 
but as long as I am not that bad, grace will never seem that good. We open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 5 for a minute. Just for a few minutes, I want to, to read through a passage of Scripture and just make a couple of points and, and we'll wrap up our time together. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Paul says, When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone. And here he goes again, for everyone sinned. See, Paul will not let you forget where it is that you stand. He doesn't say that some people sinned. He doesn't say that occasionally sin took place. But he said that everyone has sinned. And I'm thankful that he doesn't leave it in such a dark place. Look at verse 15. But there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation. But God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater, even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it, it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Now I want you to focus in on that verse, that passage right there. Now we've read a few here from Romans chapter 5, and he's trying to make the point, a point that, that David Brandt last week set up in such a beautiful way during our communion time. The comparisons of the man Adam and the man Christ. And, and Paul goes through here and he says, look, the man Adam brought sin and death. But the man Christ, the man Jesus, he brings grace and life. And for all who receive this wonderful grace, as Paul says, live in triumph. Do you see it up there? Live in triumph over sin and death. Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In another passage in Romans, he says, what you have earned or what your sin has earned is death, but that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And he says here, listen, yes, you have a sin problem. You have a sin problem, but there is a sin answer, and those who receive the beautiful, wonderful grace of God triumph over sin and death. But here's something that you have to understand. Your sin is worse than you want to admit. See, we just got to get real for a minute. No matter who you are, 
No matter where you're from, no matter how long you have been in church, no matter what your relationship has been in the past to God, your sin is worse than you want to admit. If you're the person that compares yourself to others, your sin is worse than what you really think. And if you're someone who has made that ledger and you put all the good things on one side and all the bad things on the other, God wants you to know something today. Your sin is worse than you want to admit. And until you come to grips with that, until I come to understand that, then the wonderful grace of God is not going to be that great. It's not going to be that good. Because if, if I can make it just on my goodness, then I don't need that grace. And if it's all about what I believe, and if it's all about how I obey, and if it's all about my right theology, and if it's all about going and doing good deeds, if it's all about me, then it cannot be about God. And yet you read through Scripture, and time and time again, you see where we're being told, you're not that great. You're not the best thing since life's bread. But here's the good news. Though our sin is worse than we want to admit, God's grace is greater than we can imagine. On your glory, praise, and honor this week, you have another mind bender. It's not a set of tables, it's just an equation. It's an equation like many you've seen in school before where you have something on one side, the little Pac-Man mouth, right? And you look at that picture and you see that it says grace and, and then you see that greater symbol. And then you see a blank. And I want you to feel free to take out your pen if you want to, if you want to, and and, and you write something in where you can just leave it blank. But maybe you need to write in that blank, grace is greater than my sin. Maybe you need to write in that blank, grace is greater than my choices. Maybe you need to write in there, grace is greater than my past. Maybe you need to put there, grace is greater than my works. Maybe you need to get real specific and and maybe there's something that you need to write there that you'd prefer that the people sitting around you not see. That's all right, just take it home with you and maybe you write it out and you cut this out and you put it on your mirror as a reminder each morning. That your sin is worse than you want to admit, but that God's grace is more amazing than you can ever imagine. And some of you are looking at this and your mind is being bent because you said, there is no way. There's no way. My sinfulness is too great. The grace of God can't be that good. 
That can't be all there is to it. That the grace of God is enough to cover my sin and to cover my shame and to cover my guilt. And yet maybe this is the greatest mind bender of all. That grace is greater. It's greater. It's true. Even greater is God's wonderful grace. Maybe what you needed this morning was to hear three phrases. I love you. You're forgiven. And it's supper time. See, because grace is greater, God's love was poured out upon his creation through the person of Jesus Christ. It is because of the sacrifice of Jesus taking mankind's sin upon himself, suffering through death so that the death that was brought through Adam would not be something that would inflict the creation forever. It's because of that that God says, you're forgiven. And it's because of that love and forgiveness that grace is the invitation to come to the table that God has set. The banquet table where all the children of God come and are refreshed. Where all of the sons and daughters of God come and and celebrate. It's the Thanksgiving table where you sit down with your grandparents and with all the grandkids running around and you share stories of the goodness and the graciousness of God. It's the time that you most look forward to where you're able to once again come and be with friends and and family, where you're able to once again come and celebrate and toast in celebration the person of Jesus Christ. We get a small taste of it here, very small. But there is coming a day when the dead in Christ shall rise and those who are still breathing life will be called up into the heavens and together we will be with the Lord. All because his grace is greater. Hebrews tells us not to miss the grace of God. Don't miss it. Because if you miss God's grace, then you miss everything. And so all that we've done today, through the songs, through the prayers, through our communion, through our scripture reading, through our study together, has all been done as a way in which to bend our mind around the goodness of the grace of God. And so we close out our time in this room. We'll sing praise and we will lift up our voices again to the God of grace and we give one another the opportunity to respond to that grace to come call on the name of grace, to confess the name of grace, to come be baptized into that grace. Your sin is greater than you think, but God's grace is greater than you could ever imagine. He loves you. He's forgiven you through Christ. It's supper time.
come to the feast as we stand and sing.